Let's turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 3. And if someone's got a pew Bible, you can tell me what the number is. Because I don't have a pew Bible. I've got my own. 1174. Thank you, Kath. Um, We're going to look at verses 14 to 19. But uh, perhaps I can introduce this first of all before reading it by saying that we're going to look at something that I know every single person here wants, that we all need, and sometimes we despair of ever really getting. We're going to be looking at what I would call our felt needs. If you take the phrases, uh, I feel so weak, I feel so alone, I feel so ignorant, I feel so empty and worn out, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the antidote to that. Um, So, please uh, bear with it. I think primarily, though, we're going to be looking at our our greatest need, which is the need for love. And I I picked up this from a magazine that I get, and I really liked it a lot. Talked about, with the increasing secularization of our culture, what we're missing. And this was somebody who's not a believer who was writing this. In banishing religion from our intimate affairs over the past century, we've let science in neutering and depersonalizing our passions by explaining them away as biological urges over which we have no real control. We have misplaced the human element of love. Now, the person who wrote this was not decrying science, and neither do we decry science. But what they were decrying was the notion that science is everything and can explain everything. We have misplaced the human element of love. In actual fact, we have misplaced the divine element of love, and that is what we are going to look at, because love is just the thing that is so important for so many people. If you were here last night, you would have heard Lyra, not Lyra. Lyra is the English version. Lyra was the Russian version. You would have heard Lyra singing, and boy, could they sing. Uh, there was a woman who had a bass that would shame Owen Daly. There was a, 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 another woman who had a soprano that if any of you could reach that height, I'd be astonished. She was fantastic. Um, they, were, they were great. They were humorous. It was just a really, really wonderful night. But when they were talking about Russian folk songs, they said, now, we all speak the language of music, and we know that what do you think most folk songs are about? And everyone knew love, because people are looking for love. And, you know, country music is about love. Uh, you know, I lost my dog. I lost my wife. I'm looking for love. Um, uh, pop songs are about love and so on. And we know that that's important. And that's what we have in this passage in God's Word, which I am going to read in a minute, but I'm just kind of giving the background to it first. Now, I want to say this as well. Often when people reject Christianity, it's not they're rejecting Christianity, but they're rejecting (coughs) a distorted and perverted image of it. And actually, that's also true when some people accept Christianity. What they accept is a distorted and perverted image. So how could we possibly know what is right? We're going to describe what love is. How can we know what love is? Why not just read the Daily Mail cartoon with the wee uh, boy and girl going, love is, you know, giving you your last rollo and things like that. Well, there are things that we can know by observation, but there are other things that can only be known by revelation. People say, I won't believe in God unless, until he shows himself to me, i.e., until he reveals himself. What we say is that actually he has. (coughs) 
he has revealed himself. The trouble is that people dismiss that revelation and they almost demand, I won't look unless he shows me that he showed me. And you can see where this would go. You keep going, I won't look unless he shows me that he showed me that he showed me. And you can go on forever like that. So my encouragement to you is as we look at this word, you may not as yet believe it is a word from God, but at least be prepared for the possibility that it might be. So let's read uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It's talking to the children about prayer. Uh, Let me just pray as we look at this. Lord, we do pray that as we look at Paul's prayer here, that it would be our prayer and our experience as well. In your name we ask it. Amen. If uh, you've got a Bible, in Ephesians chapter 3, to give you the kind of background here, in verse 1 he says, Paul says, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, and he's referring back to chapters 1 and 2, where he's been talking about what a wonderful thing it is to become a Christian, how we once were walking away from God, now we're walking with God, we once were in enmity against God's people, now we're united with God's people. And after he describes that, he then says, now, for this reason... And then Paul being Paul and not being very good at structure, he then uh, immediately breaks into something else and he talks about the mystery of the gospel and revelation and so on. And we looked at that last week, uh, and, or was it two weeks ago? I think it was in crash last week. We looked at it two weeks ago and uh, you can hear it on the website if you want. But the, then verse 14, he's coming back to verse 1. He's interrupted himself and he then comes back and says, for this reason... And he says, he kneels, he prays. I want to say just something about prayer. Why does Paul pray? What is prayer? Prayer is a response to the reconciling work of Christ and our understanding and grasp of that. To just pray is actually pretty stupid. Who are you praying to? What are you praying? Do you think it has merit? How does it work? Well, prayer is really our coming to the God who is really there. Because of what God had done in Christ, because of what he'd revealed to Paul, Paul is able to pray. That's why he says, for this reason I pray. And we can come to God and we can pray because of what he has done for us in Jesus. That, incidentally, is why Bible reading and prayer should always go together. I heard a criticism of the church here. There's lots of criticisms that you could make that are valid. Uh, This one I I thought was an interesting criticism. You pray too much and you read the Bible too much. And this was someone who was professing to be a Christian and they realized immediately what they'd said. And he said, well, that's not what I mean. And we had an interesting conversation. You read the Bible and we pray in response to what we learn. 
He says he kneels. The normal posture for prayer was standing. Kneeling was especially earnest. Um, This maybe doesn't happen anymore, but uh, if you get engaged, uh, I'm sure Craig asked me to announce this as well. He says he'll be here tonight. But Craig and Amy got engaged. I pretty well guarantee you that he knelt when he asked her to marry. I'm assuming he asked her. Um, That's the way that it worked. Never know with those two. But I'm pretty sure he would get... I'll check tonight because they're going to be here tonight. And I'm pretty sure that he got on his knees and said, will you marry me? And, um, well, she obviously said yes. Uh, And that's wonderful. Why get on your knees when you pray? Paul says, I kneel because he is just feeling it emotionally. He is, he is showing respect to God, yes. It's, uh, you don't slouch in prayer. I'm sorry, but the sort of laid-back Christianity, hey, Jesus, how are you doing? Uh, no, it's not that. But I think there's an earnestness in that, and there's a humility, and there's almost a self-abasement in that. So, he kneels, and he prays, and notice who he prays to. Look at the words up there. I pray, I kneel before the Father. I pray, and he's praying to that Father. Interesting description of who God is, the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. Possibly you could translate it, the Father from whom all fatherhood derives its name. I want to say something about that, about fatherhood. This is not one of analogy. This is not one of God is a father like your father, like you have a human father. It's not one of projection. If you were uh, Freudian, you wanted to follow Freudian psychology, then Freud would argue that we invented God because we needed a heavenly father type figure. Basically, we just make up one. But that's obviously not what's being said here. It's what's called derivation, being derived. He's saying that God is the source of all conceivable fatherhood. God is the ultimate parent, if you like. And uh, sometimes the temptation that some of us may have is to judge God by our experience of our parents or our father, which may not necessarily be the greatest experience in the world. And Paul is saying, no, you need to recognize that to understand this concept of fatherhood and this relationship and the love that comes with that, you actually mustn't judge God by your experience. You must judge your experience by God. There's an intimacy that in, in Paul's prayer, and there's, there's a reverence as well. But what I'm particularly interested in is what he prays for and what we should pray for. And there are four things that he mentions. The first is this. He prays for strength. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being. It's not a prayer, though it could be included for physical strength. It's a prayer for inner strength. Because Paul, the great apostle, feels weak. Nietzsche hated Christianity because it was a religion of the weak and for the weak. And you know, Nietzsche was right in that sense. He believed in Superman almost. And there are people who come into the church and maybe you're here and you're thinking, I'm okay. I'm doing all right. I'm 
I feel quite strong within myself. Well, Christianity is probably not for you. Jesus Christ is probably not for you then. Because you, you think you don't need him. Paradoxically, there are those of us who feel, I can't do this. I can't be a Christian. I can't follow Jesus. I feel so weak. Within myself, I feel so weak. Why does Paul pray that we would have this strength and that we would be indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Surely we are already indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Well, the answer to that is the indwelling of the Spirit is a thing of degrees. There's a, um, there's a depth that comes. There are two words for living in the Greek language, one, or the biblical Greek language. One is living as a stranger. We live as a stranger in this world. The other is a word that means settling down. And it's the latter that Paul uses here. He's talking about the Spirit and Christ settling down in our hearts. He's praying that um, Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. Ephesians 5 verse 18, do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And Colossians 3 verse 16 says the same thing, be filled with the Spirit. What Paul is praying for, he's praying that those of us who are conscious of our weakness, who feel weak, who spiritually are drained, who emotionally are drained, who, who have almost got into a state of fear and worry and concern, and he's saying, I pray that out of His riches, not your strength, I pray that out of His riches, He would strengthen you so that Christ would dwell in your hearts so that you would experience and so that you would know. Dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, I realize that the language of Christ dwelling in our hearts is um, often turned into religious cliche. But I want you to understand this. If you become a Christian, Christ dwells within you. It's really impossible almost to describe. But if you are a Christian... And I think this is particularly addressed to Christians. It's not enough to say, well, Jesus is in my heart. Really? How do you know? What is your experience? Ah, but you say, David, you've often told us, don't go by our, your feelings. Yes, well, Christ dwelling in your hearts isn't just your feeling, but it includes your feeling. But I would say that if we feel weak, if we are uh, conscious of that weakness, that we need the strength of Jesus Christ within us. And the way to be strengthened by the Spirit is to give Christ the right place in our hearts, and the way to be filled with the Spirit is to be submissive to the Word of Christ. The Antichrist song is not some kind of heavy metal, uh, satanic, Black Sabbath type thing. That's the Antichrist song is Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. You do not get more antichrist than that. It's, it's a horrendous idea, horrendous testimony to human stupidity, human arrogance, and human ignorance. If you're here and you're feeling weak, then my prayer and our prayer for you and your prayer for yourself 
should be, Lord, strengthen, strengthen me that Christ may dwell in my hearts through faith. The second thing we ask for is for love. He says that you're being rooted and established in love. I feel so alone. How many people say that? I feel so alone. Sometimes you feel alone because you're single. Sometimes you then get married and you feel alone because you're married. Sometimes you feel alone because you're a stranger in a particular culture. Sometimes you feel alone in your own culture. Sometimes you feel alone in the church, that you feel as though you're on your own, that you don't get it and nobody gets you. What is the solution to that? Paul says the solution is that we would be rooted and established in love. Now, I got up this morning, did the usual, made my early morning coffee, switched on Radio Scotland, got the service, and thought, this is good, because the woman who was speaking was speaking about the love of God. And I thought, okay, this will help. And then I almost dropped my coffee at what she said. Uh, Sharp-eyed of you may have noticed the title to this was, um, uh, You Are My Snuggle Bunny. Now, let me explain where that came from. She was talking about the love of God. And she said, this is how you show the love of Christ, by turning to the person beside you and saying, I love you. I'd thought of asking you to do that just now, but then I realized that most of you are, if not closet Presbyterians, wholehearted Presbyterians, and there's no way that you're going to turn around and say, I love you to somebody. It's like uh, Lewis Grassic Gibbon in Sunset Song um, writes this, so it was that she knew that she liked him, loved him, as they said in the soppy English books, you were shamed and a fool to say that in Scotland. You know, it's like, honestly, you know the cultural differences, don't you? You know, Americans basically, how you do? oh, I love him, love him, fantastic, love him. And Scots person, what do you think of them? Uh, quite like him. It's the same thing. That's our, the languages that we have. Well, we, we maybe don't say that, but supposing she just said that, that would have been okay, except that's not showing the love of Christ and saying it, perhaps. But then she went on to say, say to them, you are my snuggle bunny. And then the real test of Christian love is to go up to a homeless person or your enemy and do this. Now, I'm sorry, but I don't know what kind of homeless people live where she lives. But if I walked down the Perth Road and went up to someone and said, you are my snuggle bunny, uh, I think it'd be enough to get them off the street forever. <laughs> it, really, it really would. You know, I mean, I'm sorry, but that just reminds me of the sort of hug a hoodie type thing. Um, not that there's anything wrong with hugging hoodies. But, you know... This is the love of God. This is a woman who's talking about the love of Jesus Christ. And it's saying to people, you are my snuggle bunny. You know, we live in a completely mad world. And sometimes the church is like that as well. Contrast. Contrast that with what Paul says here about Christ. And what the Bible says about love. Love is the preeminent virtue. God is love. We need the power of the Spirit and the indwelling of Christ in order to love. We need here, he says, we need deep roots and firm foundations, a well-rooted tree and a well-grounded house. He's telling us that the cause of stability in our lives is love, that that's the soil in which we are to be rooted, that that is the foundation on which our life is to be built. It is radical, rooted. It is fundamental, foundational. Now, in order for that to happen... In order for us 
to know that love or to experience that love. We need to know the love of Jesus Christ. Now, please be very careful here. I am not saying that if you are not a Christian, you cannot love. What I'm saying is, if you are not a Christian, you cannot experience the depths of love because God is love, the depths that that God has for us. So, the third thing is knowledge. That's what he prays. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. There's a feeling that I have and I'm sure that you have as well, which sometimes goes like this. I'm, I'm, I'm ignorant. I know so little. We have a cheap and shallow view of love and we know it's not enough. But how do we define the love of Christ? How do we know? What does that mean when we, t- we talk about the love of Jesus? If it's not the hug a hoodie type thing, if it's not the just turning around to people and saying, I love you, what is it? How can we know the love of Christ? Let me say this. You will spend all eternity being amazed and getting to appreciate the love of Jesus Christ. And there were so many verses I could think of in the Bible about this, but the one I think that that sums it up for me almost more than anything is this. When Jesus, it's said about Jesus as he was going to Jerusalem, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. He loved his disciples, and he's going to Jerusalem, and it's recorded that he loved them to the end. And that means he went to the cross for them. It means he went through the humiliation and the torture of that horrendous death for them and for us. How do we know what love is? We know what Christ has done for us. There's a marvelous quote from Milton's Paradise Lost that I've put up there, where Milton says this, unless for him some other able and as willing pay the rigid satisfaction, death for death, say heavenly powers, where shall we find such love? Which of ye will be mortal to redeem man's mortal crime, and just the unjust to save, dwells in all heaven, charity so dear. Charity there being the old word, Latin word for love, caritas. Milton, in his poem, is asking, is there even in heaven a love that is so dear? Well, Paul says, yes, there is. He says, I pray that you would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. It's uh, an extraordinary depth of what Jesus did for us. It's broad. It's broad enough to encompass all people. There isn't a single person who is sitting here. There isn't a single person who you will meet this week. There isn't a single person who you can watch on television who you can say they are beyond the love of Christ. They've gone too far. I think it's an extraordinary thing that while we were still His enemies, Christ died for us. His love is broad. His love is deep, deep enough to reach the most degraded. The feeling of being alone, the feeling of being depressed, the feeling of being discouraged, the feeling of being broken, the feeling of being useless and empty, bitterness and anger 
things that go very, very deep into our lives that sometimes we cover up with a smiling face, but they're deep, deep, deep within us. What love can reach that? Human love can help us, absolutely. But what love can reach that? Only the love of Christ that goes deeper than anything you will ever, ever experience. I went to ICU this week. I had a lovely visit to the main nurse who was quizzing me about all my feelings of the experience and so on. And uh, one of the things we talked about, uh, for me a little bit surreally in this context, was spiritual experience. And I said that there was one, probably two occasions, two periods at the worst part of my own illness um, for those of you who are visitors, I, I'd been ill for a while, uh, kind of in a coma, really. And uh, there are two occasions in that that I could only describe as just a horrible blackness, not even a fear of death, but almost satanic, just, just a depth of darkness that I'd never experienced before. And what is Paul telling us here? He's saying Christ's love is so deep that it goes deeper than anything that you will ever experience. His love is high. I pray, he says, that you would know the height of his love, high enough to exalt Jesus to heaven and to take us with him. And it's long. I pray that you would know that his, his love will last for all eternity. Isn't that the nightmare? You, you love someone, you, you marry them, or you have a friendship with them, and then what happens five years down the line, 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line? What if they don't love me anymore? And when people come to Jesus Christ, there's almost that within us which says, well, I know Jesus loves me just now, but what if He won't love me later on? What if I turn away? Well, Paul says, I pray that you would know the length of the love of Jesus Christ. And you see, this love is so amazing it's so deep. It's so wide. It's so, it, you know what it's like? He's describing it as though you're going on a ship in the ocean and you can go in different directions. And he's thinking of, I want you to explore this love. I want you to know this love going in different directions. That's why the kind of Christianity which goes, yeah, I love Jesus, and hallelujah, I love Jesus, and hallelujah, I know the love of Jesus. First of all, there's nothing wrong with a hallelujah. We need, could do with a few more of them, so feel free anytime. But what we don't do is cheapen the love of Jesus by turning it into some kind of spiritual language that we all say, but we don't feel, that we don't know. To know Him is to love Him. And I think it's a great encouragement for me personally anyway, and I hope it is for you, to realize that you haven't got it all, you haven't understood it all, you haven't grasped it all. In fact, you've hardly even begun the beginning. There is so much more to learn about the love of Jesus Christ. Immeasurably more. That's what he says. It's in, if you go to verse 20, immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Now, the point about in the prayer here is that Paul says, I pray that you would get this together with all the saints. Saints here just meaning Christians. You can know something of the love of Christ when you're on your own. But you see, here's the buzz. You need all the people of God, all the saints, young and old, to know it. 
You may be able to comprehend it in your minds, but it's beyond knowing in your mind. It's beyond knowledge. And we need all our combined experience to fathom it. That's why we need the church. We are united to each other by virtue of being united to Christ. We use the term communion rather than union because it's a community in union. And that should help us. You should see gathering together with your fellow Christians, being together as being an experience of the love of God. That's why when non-Christians come in, they should say, truly God is amongst you. Why? Because... By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. In other words, as we experience the love of God, we share the love of God. As we share the love of God, we experience the love of God. And we break out of this miserable cycle of depression and discouragement and bitterness and cynicism and hatred, leading to more depression and discouragement and bitterness and cynicism and hatred and hypocrisy and so on. We break out of that, and as we see the love of Jesus, we love other people. And as we love other people, we see the love of Jesus. And so it goes on. But the important thing there is, don't just say, right, I'm going to get up and I'm going to love people. Because then you end up with, uh, I'm going to hug a hoodie or whatever it is. You know, give them a cup of coffee and so on. Great. All these things are great. But real love only comes when you appreciate that you are loved. And until you grasp that you are loved by God to the depth and the extent of the love of Jesus Christ, you're not really going to be free to love other people because you're going to love yourself more and you're going to be scared that you'll get hurt. But if you're relying on the love of Christ, then you're saying, it doesn't matter what people do to me because Christ is with me and Christ loved me even more than that. That's why I love this quote from C.S. Lewis where he says this, there are no ordinary people. This is how we regard other people. You, n- you have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of the kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity, our love in other words, must be real and costly love, with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinners. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. You see, there is a deep joy and a a deep peace that all stems from the deep, deep love of Jesus Christ. The last thing is fullness. It says, I pray that you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. We feel, maybe I just say I, but I'm pretty sure most of you feel like this at times. At times, I feel, we feel that we're running on empty. That. We remember fullness once, back in the past when, when we were full of life and full of joy and full of love and uh, spiritually alive, but now we feel empty. We feel just worn out. And Paul says, I'm praying for you, and he says the same to the Colossians. You read through Colossians, he uses the same phrase a couple of times. He prays that they would be filled It's a contradiction as well. He says, 
I pray you be filled. You are filled. I pray you be filled with all the fullness of God. And you know what that means? It means filled up to God's capacity. In other words, you could be filled with the Holy Spirit at this point, and you still pray for filling. Why? Because in effect, your vessel, your, your cup, when you say, my cup runneth over or whatever, you're really praying for an enlarged cup, an increased capacity for love and for joy. We shall, he's saying, become like Christ. We shall attain the fullness of love. It's something we work towards just now. Something we'll never get absolutely until we are in heaven. But it's something we can experience just now, and it's something that we can grow, grow with. And again, I particularly appeal to those of you who are Christians. Don't be satisfied with the dregs. Don't be satisfied with living on the memories of the past. Ask God to fill you with His love. Don't let love be turned into a cliché. Let love be something that is absolutely real. These are bold prayers that Paul prays, incredible prayers, the strength of the Spirit, the rooting of lives in love, the knowledge of Christ's love in all its aspects, and the fullness of God Himself. It's as though there's a, a staircase, it's a spiral staircase, and it's so amazing that you're feeling faint and giddy at the prospect of it. Verses 20 to 21, which I'll just read to you. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I have so much to say on that that I'm not going to say it. Uh, I'll, you'll have to come tonight. We'll do that tonight, I think. Um, uh, Brian is not well. He's going to be preaching this evening. I'm going to preach this evening. And I'm going to take the, those verses for uh, this evening because it, that's an... <laughs> You know, that's just a, a mind-blowing thing, as we've been, what we've been looking at is totally mind-blowing. So, let me just finish this here by trying to stress to you again. Let me, let me stress to those of you who are not yet Christians. If you thought Christianity was about religion, if you thought it was about a series of do's and don'ts, if you thought it was a moral code, if you thought it was just following a book, if you thought it was joining a particular clique or a particular group, you, you have no idea of what Christianity is. It is not. It is about knowing Jesus Christ and loving Jesus Christ and experiencing the love of Jesus Christ. It is so breathtakingly good that you cannot even imagine how good it is. You think of the best thing that you can possibly imagine, you haven't even begun to touch it. And that's why I would ask you, if you're not a Christian, to look for Christ as He's looking for you. And if you are a Christian, I know what it's like, and you know what it's like, that so much of our religion does become religion. It becomes cliched. It becomes running on autopilot. And sometimes we do that. Well, repent of that, please. Don't treat God like that. Don't treat the love of Christ as a thing that is almost to be despised, as something that is not sufficient for you or good enough for you or something that you can earn. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do that can earn it. You can't. Just believe you've been given it and luxuriate in it and, and rejoice in it. Ask God, pray as Paul does. Kneel, plead with Him earnestly that you would be strengthened with power in your inner being by the Spirit 
that Christ would dwell in your hearts, that you'd be rooted and established with love, that together with all of us, we would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we ask your blessing to be upon your word. We do pray that you would guide us and that we would experience and know your love. O Lord, uh, as we reflect upon this and as we sing about it, forgive us for our shallow understanding. Your love is so amazing that if we were to grasp it, it would overwhelm us completely. And yet that is what we ask. For those of us here who are lonely and heartbroken and discouraged and wounded, Lord, heal by immersing us in your love. For those who are angry and bitter, Lord, heal by immersing us in your love. For those who are weak and disempowered and frustrated, Lord, strengthen and heal by immersing us in your love. For we ask it in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.